Hey, welcome back, storytellers. This is your host, Yin Chang. We have a special podcast episode for you today that features award-winning and best-selling author E.B. Zaboy and activist Dr. Yusuf Salam of the Exonerated Five in conversation with 88 Cups of Tea's guest host, Lalina Cheng, an advocate whose work is focused on the intersection of racial equity and environmental justice. In today's new podcast episode, they discuss E.B. and Yusuf's newly released young adult novel in verse, Punching the Air, that tells the story of a young Black Muslim boy who is wrongfully incarcerated. In 1989, Dr. Yusuf Salam was just 15 years old when he was tried and convicted in the Central Park Jogger case, along with four other Black and Latino boys. The Exonerated Five spent between 7 to 13 years behind bars until their sentences were overturned in 2002. Since then, they received a multi-million dollar settlement from the city of New York for its injustice and were profiled in award-winning films including the Central Park Five documentary from Ken Burns, Sarah Burns and David McMahon and the award-winning Netflix limited series, When They See Us, written and directed by Ava DuVernay. Over the past two decades, Yusuf has become a family man, father, poet, activist, and inspirational speaker. He continues to share his story with others to educate the public about the impact of mass incarceration and police brutality. He regularly advocates for criminal justice reform, prison reform, and the abolition of juvenile solitary confinement and capital punishment. Yusuf is the recipient of a Lifetime Achievement Award from President Barack Obama, the Phoenix Award from the Congressional Black Caucus, an Honorary Doctorate of Humanities from Anointed by God Ministries Alliance and Seminary, and a long list of proclamations, most notably by New York State Senate and New York City Council. Punching the Air co-author E.B. Zaboy was born in Port-au-Prince, Haiti, and holds an MFA in Writing for Children and Young Adults from Vermont College of Fine Arts. Her novel, American Street, was a National Book Award finalist and a New York Times notable book. She is also the author of Pride and My Life as an Ice Cream Sandwich, a New York Times bestseller, and is the editor of the anthology Black Enough, Stories of Being Young and Black in America. Evie's writing has been published in the New York Times Book Review, The Horn Book Magazine, and The Rumpus, among others. As an educator, she's the recipient of several grants from the Brooklyn Arts Council for her community-based programs for teen girls in both Brooklyn and Haiti. She's worked for arts organizations such as Teachers and Writers Collaborative and Community Word Project as a writer in residence and teaching artists in New York City public schools. Today's special edition podcast episode is, for the first time ever, guest hosted by an advocate whose work is focused on the intersection of racial equity and environmental justice. And this advocate so happens to be my sister, Lalina Chang. By trade, Lalina is a consultant at Deloitte within the government and public sector. Outside of her client work, Lalina spearheaded a three-month curriculum at Deloitte around anti-racism and environmental justice, facilitating over a dozen sessions locally in the greater Washington area, as well as nationally with more sessions to come. 
These discussion groups aim to be intimate settings where practitioners can continue the momentum and dialogue around dismantling our country's deeply unjust system by reflecting on their own biases, teasing out thought-provoking concepts by Black authors and speakers, and supporting each other in being the change they want to see in their own social circles and communities. Her vision was not only to provide education around topics like police brutality, environmental racism and microaggressions and its impact on marginalized communities, but more importantly, drive engagement, accountability, and action that lasts far longer than the news cycle. Lalina holds degrees in molecular cellular developmental biology and sociology from Yale University, where she served as a former president of the Ivy Council. In today's conversation, Lalina interviews Yusuf and E.B. about co-authoring Punching the Air and how their book came to fruition and the power of self-purpose and hope. They discuss how Yusuf's spiritual journey was mirrored through Punching the Air's main character, Amal, and how E.B. embraced and holistically weaved Yusuf's stories and philosophies to craft a story told from a young Muslim black boy's point of view. Further in, they break down and analyze two influential poems in the novel that speak to Yusuf's experience being boxed in with his thoughts and his own devices in his jail cell and the power that DNA has to tie individuals to the collective injustices of the past. E.B. shares how crafting her poems in different shapes and forms helps bring to life the meaning of the poems on the page. And later, they discuss what it means to bring diversity with diversity and the crucial work that still needs to be done to create holistic representation of communities of color in the literary world. Punching the Air is now available, so be sure to support and buy a copy at your local indie bookshop or at bookshop.org. I am also thrilled to announce that we've teamed up with HarperCollins Children's Books to give our listeners a chance to win a copy of Punching the Air. Three listeners will get the chance to win a copy, so make sure you enter. To enter for your chance to win, you must be a U.S. resident, share a photo of yourself while listening to this podcast episode, or take a screenshot of your favorite podcast player like Spotify or Apple Podcasts while listening and post that photo to your Instagram or Twitter. And in your post, share why you think it's important for people to listen to this conversation. And bonus points for those of you who share how this episode resonated with you. And you must include hashtag punching the air and tag at 88 cups of tea for us to find your post. The deadline to enter is Thursday, September 10th, 11.59 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and that's 8.59 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Now let's dive right in today's 88 Cups of Tea special edition podcast episode. I need to start off by saying how excited I've been to even meet you both. For a little context, Senior year, one of my favorite seminars I took at Yale was called Wrongful Convictions. It was second semester senior year. And the first documentary we watched as a class together was the Central Park Five documentary. That's when I first learned about the Exonerated Five, the Central Park Five in general, and the Central Park Jogger case. This was all new to me. Like, I was blown away. I couldn't wrap my head around it. So I've been so excited to meet you, Yusuf, and Evie. Your writing is immaculate. I started reading some of your articles online and 
one that really tugged at my heartstrings and was just so thoughtful and thought provoking was your rumpus piece about your dad and how you were yeah. comparing <laughs> rape culture like in America and and how he your father you know there's this this dueling feeling towards him because he's your father figure who treated you well but also what does this mean the way he's treated your mom and other women and how he himself was a victim of patriarchy and colonialism and the way you threaded that through with Obama's quote I was blown away I shared it with my whole family and my friends like (laughs) your writing is beautiful I'm absolutely honored to be here with you both today this is my first time reading a novel in verse and I actually don't read poetry very often or I haven't in-depth read poetry in college but I really thoroughly enjoyed this I love the artwork in the front as well you guys must be so thrilled to have collaborated on this project I think it's so funny that you guys met at Hunter College I don't know if you know this but Yin actually went there for college herself so when I read about that I started laughing this was uh probably recently (laughs) I hope it has the same vibe as it did when we were there I'm trying to think. It was, I think she went around 2005 or so. Not too long after I was there or we were there. Yeah. And then you guys met, was it several years later at that book festival, right? Yeah. Vegas Valley Book Festival three years ago. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So is this your first time working with another partner when writing? Well, this is Yusef's first traditionally published book. (laughs) This is my fifth traditionally published book and I edited an anthology. So in some ways I've already, I've always collaborated. I feel like the editorial process is collaborative in some way, but this is, this is the first time I'm actually just the the writing from someone's lived experience. That's a different kind of collaboration. We did essentially come up with a fictional story, but it is based on Yusef as a character first and foremost. Mm Mm-hmm. I bet like through throughout the writing process, right, there were moments that you guys had to collaborate and figure out the way in which to maybe order some of the poems or figure out like the structure. Do you do you guys mind talking a little bit about maybe one of those experiences where you guys maybe were trying to brainstorm how to do that the best it could? Because our community is a community of writers. So I figure that craft might be interesting for people to hear about. Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, for the most part, I'm a storyteller, you know, so I, I tell the stories and in terms of just the, this perspective I think I have on the world, it was able to be worked through the amazing way that AB works. And so the questions that she asked was like the perfect questions. And it got me to thinking about the most profound experiences that I had gone through. And, you know, looking at prison as a, as a young person, and what that means, right? What what does it mean, first of all, to go to prison so young and to be trapped in that system where they want you to really revisit? They want you to come back often. So they, you know, it's called recidivism. Whereas that experience was different for me. You know, it was about me going in there, knowing a lot about self, understanding things, diving deeper into that process, and then blossoming when I came out in order to be able to 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 stand correctly. From my vantage point, it was taking everything that Yusef had to say about his experience. And it wasn't so much that he was sharing with me what happened 
in the beginning, middle, and end of his journey, it was more about what it meant. I kind of want to say, Yusuf, the way you connect the dots is, is more of a philosophical way. So I was able to take those ideas thematically and put them into poetry form. And of course, I didn't experience what Yusef experienced. So the details, okay, what did your cell look like? What did you do throughout the cross of the day? Became irrelevant because it was more about the character, the emotional journey of this boy, because that's the story that Yusef was sharing with me, his emotional journey and what it meant to be there and how he survived day in and day out. So the minutia, the details were not always there, but I filled in the blanks the best way that I could. But it was more about the spiritual journey of a boy because that's the way that Yusef told it. I think this would have been a different book if Yusef's storytelling style was, this is what happened to me the first month, and then this is what happened to me the following year, and this is what happened to me. We would have had a different story. But because he is so introspective and so spiritual in his understanding as to why this happened to him, Amal is spiritual in that same way. I love that. And it sounds like you took a holistic approach, right? So Yusuf was able to share his stories, how he felt, and perhaps even his purpose, right? Like you have such a strong sense of purpose, both of you. And Yusuf, through your story, it's very clear. For me, I was so curious because Yusuf, I've seen in your talks where you talk about that guy who had that immense tattoo of the black boys and girls with nooses around their necks. And I noticed that character came up in Punching the Air, right? And I was just curious, were there any components or portions of your story that you told Evie, like, hey, like, this is really important for me to weave in? Like, were there any moments where you were like, these are some components of the story that I really want to parallel through them all aside from the emotional journey? I think it was really that whole spiritual aspect, wanting to really bring out the fact that every single one of us were born on purpose and with a purpose. You know, through the African method of childbirth and baby naming and all of that stuff, there's a process. It's not how we may seem, you know, like in, in America, for instance, before a child is born, the child is given a name. Oftentimes there's clothing purchased, there's a baby shower that happens. And then the child may come out somebody else, right? <laughs> so you might've gotten all girl clothes, infant <laughs> size, and this child comes out pretty hefty as a boy, you know, or even pretty hefty as a girl. And now you got to take all of that stuff back. You know, the thing about what happens in the African perspective is that you have to really first and foremost realize that this child that is in you is actually a gift from God. And as a gift from God, your main question is, who is this that is supposed to be given to the world, who is going to show up in the world? And you have to observe that child for seven days after they're born before you even name it. And part of the name, the name comes from what you've observed, what spoke to you about the child. And then you give the name and you call everyone mm -hmm. from the community to share in the experience of the baby naming ceremony. And just like a baby shower, people come with gifts and things like that as well. And so I think that the thing that I wanted to convey most importantly 
was the sense of being born for a purpose, that you're born on purpose. You're not born by mistake. Even mm -hmm. in the most unpopular, worst kinds of situations, the fact that you come out, you show up in the world, now you have to live this life. And if you show up and come out on purpose, then you have the opportunity to psychosocially say that you matter, right? And so therefore you begin to add as opposed to detract. You don't move throughout your life as if you're a mistake. I had the job of taking all of that and making it accessible for a 16-year-old reader. Yusef wasn't necessarily thinking all these things as a 16-year-old, right? So there was the seed of all those ideas already there. And this is who Amal is. Amal has those seeds to think in that way, to think about, wow, I have a greater purpose, but he hasn't come to that uh, realization just yet. So it's in, in collaborating in those stories, Yusef would say that very thing to me. And I'd be like, that's great. But how can I make that clear for a 16-year-old boy? And how could I put that within the consciousness of a 16-year-old boy? Right, right. Yusuf, do you want to share with our community what your name means? Because I know you've shared that in the past. And maybe, Ebi and Yusuf, how you guys decided on Amal's name? There's value in who you are, you know. And one of the things that's really, really brilliant, I think, is when my parents named me, they gave me the name Yusuf Idris Fadil Abdus Salam. Of course, you know, you shorten your name down. You know, my nickname might have been Yaz Podik <laughs> in the hip hop world. <laughs> my nickname was Deep Dr. Love. It was Little Daddy Kane at some point. But the question was asked to me when I was in prison. Who are you? And that question I thought was, you know, innocent enough. And when I answered it, I said, I'm, I'm Yusuf Salam, one of the guys that they accused of raping the Central Park jogger. But I didn't do it. And the officer that asked me that question was really trying to spark me. He was trying to get me to think in a way that I had not necessarily thought before. And this is early on in prison. I mean, it could have been like maybe just a few months into my prison bid. And when I answered him and he said, no, I know that I've been watching you. You're not supposed to be here. Why are you here? Who mm -hmm. are you? And that question asked of me again caused me to go down the rabbit hole. It caused me to think about my name in a way that I had not thought about it before, uncovering deeper meanings. You know, people would say Yusuf means right. Joseph and then finding out that that's just the English equivalent, just like Mary and Maryam. You know, and when I found out that Yusuf means God will increase, I found out that it's not like my, my family gave me a sentence as a name, that all the components have to be put together in order for you to understand the person. Right. And so Yusuf means God will increase. Idris means the teacher. Fa'adil is with justice. And Salam is peace. And when you put it all together, God will increase the teacher with justice and peace. Now, this is before I ever went to prison. Naming me after a prophet. Actually, I have a few names of a prophet in my name. But naming me after a prophet specifically who went through a journey where he was accused of rape was profound. I mean, when I read that in prison, mm -hmm. I was totally blown away. The whole like, oh, wow. You know, it was speaking to me in a way that I had never been spoken to before. It was telling me that I was going to be all right. It was telling me that there was a greater purpose for me 
but I was going to grow through this as opposed to just go through something that I was going to come out on the other side and I would not be bitter, but I would be better because of this. That was beautiful. Thanks, Yusuf. And of course, Sabal's name means hope, right? Edie and Yusuf, did you guys come to that decision together? How did you guys decide on that? So, you know, just to start off, I would say that was also like a, a Easter egg of sorts where we wanted to have the reader understand that they put us all the time in a box. They always define for us who we are. They say, I'm going to judge the cover of the person without trying to understand the character of the person. And oftentimes when they do that, we were placed in this box and there's some beautiful layouts in the book that talks about things like that and Mm -hmm. how people, you know, the one uh, we were talking earlier about the piece called clone and you know, just the whole notion and idea that if I can get you to believe the worst about you, I got you. But the interesting thing was that hope also is put in prison. If you have the opportunity to be still and listen, you can get so much value from it. And I'm not talking about going there like, hey, let's go to prison. Let's go on a field trip. No, I'm saying if you find yourself there, there's something to be gotten. Don't just go through the process of prison, right? You can either do time or let time do you. And most of the times, if you let time do you, you come out a monster. But if Mm -hmm. you do the time, then you can utilize time and still find sacredness and specialness in you. You know, there's value there. And so I think part of the process of giving the character Amal the name that means hope was because of that idea that hope was trapped in prison. And he is the answer. He is his mm-hmm. own hope. There is just such beautiful imagery throughout the whole book, right? And in particular, I notice as a motif, we have these lines, right? These walls that are basically boxing in a mall, and he's been painted black and white. People think that they know who he is. He He's painted as this unfocused kid who has the ability to be a menace to society and hurt this boy, right? And even through the poetry, there's this talk of colors not being able to bleed past lines. And, and then there's also the opposite to that, where Amal uses art, right? And he's able to defy those lines by drawing curves and circles and all these other beautiful shapes. And I I saw that as his defiance against the societal preconceptions of him. And he uses art as a way to tell his truth. And so, Evie, could you share with our community different components of the poetry that you've laid out throughout Punching the Air and how that relates to the title and the meaning of what a mall as a character represents? You know, even before I started writing, I knew that there had to be a poem in the shape of a box. I mean, it was just there. And I had to work with shapes because of where he is, just to speak to this idea of being boxed in. So there is one poem where it's a box. There's one where it's three walls and there's an opening I played around with space on the page where there's a four-line poem on one corner and another four-line poem on another corner or four-line poems on each corner of the page. 
And I got that idea from watching the Khalif Browder documentary. I don't know if you know this, Youssef. There was a scene in the documentary where Khalif Browder was was a 16-year-old boy who was sent to Rikers Island, where Youssef had spent some time for being accused of stealing a backpack, which he didn't steal. And he ended up being there for three years without getting a trial, without ever getting a trial. And it traumatized him so much that he was already released. He committed suicide at home. And this documentary was produced by Jay-Z. So in the documentary, you see Khalif in his backyard walking the corners, walking the cell. And he walks from one corner to another. And that's pacing the cell. I, I, I didn't ask Youssef about that. I don't think I was ready to go there, but I just needed to capture this idea of constantly being in one room and how psychologically damaging that could be. How do I put that on the page, right? I can't, I'm not going to describe it. We had to get into what is he thinking? He's replaying that night in his head over and over again. And I'm sure Yusuf would replay different things that happened during his trial and before that. Over, You have time to think. You have time to constantly think about what happened. And I wanted to just show, well, this idea of just being trapped in and you're left to your own devices, your own mental process, your own spiritual process while being boxed in. And the best way that I could convey that was through how the words are placed on the page. One of my favorite poems is talking about Lady Justice, right? In Blind Justice. And it's a scale. You have you have two phrases on the same line. And when I noticed this, I was like, oh my God, so cool. <laughs> so you have those two phrases on the same line. And it says Amal Shahid on the left and then Jeremy Mathis on the right. And then right under that phrase, it's perfectly imbalanced. And so you see the scale on the page. And I thought that was beautiful. And me having studied molecular cellular developmental biology, guess which poem <laughs> got me excited? The DNA one, right? <laughs> like where you had, you had like done the helix through the multiple words. And I really got a kick out of that. And I just wanted to say that I think that the way you were able to convey meaning through structure, that is a whole new appreciation for me and poetry just through reading this book. I thought that was so well done. Were there any instances that you were like, oh, I'm not sure I could go this way or that way or the ordering of the poems, perhaps, that you can speak to, Evie? A lot of these ideas came from you. You planted seeds whenever we had conversation and he just knows this off the cuff, right? What is DNA, Yusef? I don't even like to say the word DNA because it sounds flimsy to say it. I love to say dioxyribonucleic acid because that big, that big powerful phrase is, is the truth. Like in that is the truth of whether a person did it or not. You know, when you look at these cases, especially my case, there was no DNA, but they still was able to figure out how can we legally lynch them? You know, mm-hmm. and that's the part that was amazingly scary. But then it gives us an idea of what's going on in the criminal justice system, why I call it the criminal system of injustice, why we can talk about Jerry Mathis and Amal Shahid in the way that we're talking about, you know, all of the things, all of the ideas that are being placed there are placed on purpose, but also to get the reader to think. So this is so he would say this and I'm thinking, how could I write a poem about DNA? 
right? Because he loves saying the whole word. And of course, I would just use the helix, you know? <laughs> right, right. No, right. not DNA. Deoxyribonucleic acid. That's right, how right. you got to do it. <laughs> and I actually put the whole word as the title, but it took away from it, right? So it took away from the poem and to write it all out. So I just put DNA, this this idea that we are linked it's, it's, it's something that could have linked him to the crime, but I flipped it and say he's linked to all the, you know, all the injustices that came before him, right? And the last line is that what if we're not supposed to break free from these chains? You know, they're, they're like chains. So it's, it's me thinking everything that he says, he, he would say, and he would say exactly the way you heard it and just finding a way to make it accessible to young readers. I know that there were, I think, at least two poems with DNA, right? In, in yeah. this novel. I'm going to share something from another one of my favorite classes. It was called Race, Medicine, and the Body. And I was so blown away when I learned that there's no biological basis for race. Like, they did this whole scientific study to try to basically see if there are significant groupings within DNA across the globe. And it could have been sliced and diced six ways, 24 ways, 100 ways. And it's just insane to me how race has been used as this power construct, right? And it's been used to create hierarchy and to oppress people. And so when I was reading DNA, I was I was thinking of all of that and how that ties in as well. And that's something I wish I knew because I, I was pre-med in college. They use race as a independent variable in their studies, but they don't really know how to define what it is because it's not really significant. I think that concept in general, I love this book because like there are a lot of learning moments, even 13th Amendment, right? You guys had that slapped on a page. It was boxed and it was there. There was section one, which is abolishing slavery and involuntary servitude. There's section two that empowers Congress to make sure that section one is enforced. And then Amal asking like, wait, does this mean we're slaves? And then Dr. Benu having to explain that as someone in jail, you're a property of the state. I think that is a huge learning moment. And I wish I had a book during my time that could teach me that. It took me so long to learn about that, guys. Like, I, I learned about that loophole through 13th, the documentary, about how, yeah, 13th Amendment is known to abolish slavery, except when <laughs> you are convicted by the state, right? I would love for you guys to, to share with the audience how you took such a complicated topic that has so many facets that bleeds and has tentacles into so many different systems in our society and how you chose which components to teach the youth in this book. Because I thought the 13th Amendment, that was very, very beautifully done. How did you figure out what components to teach? It was all there. You know, it was so easy because Amal is already aware it wasn't a story about him coming into awareness. Amal was aware because Yusef was aware as a teen. So we started with the character first, and that character is based on Yusef. And one of the interviews I had asked him 
we interviewed each other. I asked him, how did you become so aware? How is it that at 15 and 16, this injustice is happening to you, but you could name it. You were able to name it. And your mother was the one who advocated for you the most, but you still got caught up in there. That idea came from what Yusef already knows and we were able to weave it into the story because it was just a reflection of Amal's thinking. So if it was another character, Dr. Benu would have said that and it probably would have went right over a child's head, right? It would have probably through, he picked up on it. And from a different perspective, it would have been something that child may have not been even listening. Another child could have been thinking about just slapping some other kid on the face, right? Or daydreaming about something else. All of that is based on the character and that character is based on Yusef. You know, what, what's cool about that too is that it's the realization of how big a disservice we've been done. You know, when it comes to young people, I remember you could sometimes go on any block in any neighborhood and say, hey, do you know who Martin Luther King was? And they would be like, who's that? And I'm saying that because it's about the socialization of information, right? Mm -hmm. And so Dr. Angela Davis said, we as a people have historical amnesia. Whereas if you are told about what things are, like, you know, I went through the process, like a lot of people were going through the process of having to learn in school and then unlearn or to be taught the right thing. And so we might've had the history lesson that we hated, math that we hated, and then we had to, you know, go home and our mother, our supplemental information was, you know, the people's history by Howard Zinn. You know, oh, wow. So this is what really happened. But also at the same way, not being confrontive, but just knowing like, OK, this is what they're teaching you. So you have to know what you need to know according to the system that you are under. But you also need to know the truth. And I think mm -hmm. that that's the part that's beautiful, because. Young people today, when you talk sometimes, I, I don't want to necessarily say today, as things became more in the street, things have been changing. But there was a time when young people, when you would ask them about slavery and they would say to you, come on, why are we talking about something that, that happened like eons ago? Slavery was just yesterday. There's a big push to continue slavery with the whole states' rights idea, because they're not telling you the whole thing, like states' rights and Going back to a quote unquote great time in America was when we were chattel slaves. And the most important thing, I think, is to realize that we did not begin there, but that's how we are taught we began. You were slaves. And so like Dr. John Henry Clark said, to begin a people's history with slavery, anything else looks like progress. I think you guys touch on this aspect of how much kids understand slavery and how it still impacts us today immensely. And by the way, something really exciting today at work, Ibram X. Kendi was invited to Deloitte to speak and he had his talk today. One thing that really stood out to me was he said, if there's anything we need to fight over, it's over the minds of our children. And he mentioned how our education system is probably one of the most politicized spaces. And I thought that really stood out to me, especially with our conversation today. I wish I had a book like this that I could read when I was younger. 
I would have learned so much. The fact that I'm telling you all these facts that I learned only pretty recently, like the nuances and things like that, I just wish I had that. And so I can't thank you guys enough. Like, I know, Evie, through your talks of, you know, driving diversity within diversity, right? And how you've mentioned countless times that you can't think about Black literature without thinking about the historical impacts of slavery and how you yourself as a mom, you have your bookshelf at home and you have this collection of books that you paint as this quilt. I thought that was beautiful. Do you mind sharing with the audience, number one, what do you mean by driving diversity within diversity? And then number two, how do you think punching the air has its own spot within that quote that you talk about in your bookcase. Oh, that's fine bookshelf. That's in the horn book. So I think I wanted to write this book with Yusuf because he has such a unique perspective, even amongst the other four members of the Exonerated Five. And we share a similar perspective. Of course, every one of those members are from New York City. At the same time, Growing up in New York City, we were not all the same, right? There is this idea of uh, a kid in New York growing up on hip hop. So one of the things we first reminisced about when we were working on this book was how we were more into conscious hip hop. That's what we called it back then. Nobody says woke hip hop because there isn't any woke hip hop, right? So instead, before woke, we used to say conscious. And it was sort of that politicized hip hop where rappers had a message in their music. It was saying making political statements. It was addressing social justice issues. And it was rappers like KRS-One, Public Enemy. I know in the 90s in high school, I preferred Tribe Called Quest over everybody. So in that sense, it was your sort of like hippie rappers who just were less commercial so Yusef was an artist at 16 and 15. He had a high top fade. He had buttons and artwork all over his pants. He still has the pants that he was wearing on the, that fateful night in Central Park. And it's covered in artwork. It's covered in artwork. So I connected to that because I was that teen too. We don't usually get to see the artsy Black teen who gets caught up in the system, who gets sent to jail, Right. We think of like a stereotypical thug that the movies and sometimes books like to perpetuate. But he was an artist, right? In the same way that Amal with his funky hair and his funky sense of style, he's more skater than a baller is what he says. He's more Kendrick Lamar than Blueface, meaning that there's something that he wants to say to the world and he's very socially aware, but he still gets caught in the system. So that's the sort of diversity within diversity I wanted to address. Here's a Black boy. He knows about Salvador Dali. He knows Picasso paintings. He knows Monet and all of those classical art figures. But he also knows Jacob Lawrence and all the other Black artists. He knows Basquiat and he identifies with Basquiat. That sort of worldly kid who still is affected by the system. And as you see, you're listening to Yusef. He is like a worldly and well-read man in the same way that I am. I didn't always look like this or dress like this as a teenager. You know, I've evolved over time. And that's the sort of diversity within diversity that I don't see in children's books, 
right? We don't see artsy Black kids, right? We don't see funky Asian kids. We don't see non-binary Latinx kids. All those things, we still have work to do to show the plethora of Black and brown children that existed in our New York City when we were growing up. Youssef, you have demonstrated or have been able to create this character with Evie, right, who reflects your religious intersectionality with your Black identity. And so as authors and Evie, like you let me know, do you think that there's a lot of works out there that represent Black Muslim people? Do you think that this is another piece that pushing that identity to the forefront and bringing that diversity? Because again, I'm not in the literary space, but I was curious to hear from your guys' perspective. I think that just from what I've seen, it's a very touchy topic. (laughs) (laughs) It is almost Mm -hmm. taboo. But the beautiful thing about it is this, like, I've, you know, I don't know if you've heard me say this in some of my speeches, you know, I'm often running to a plane because, say, for instance, in the month of January and February, there are so many things, so many events that I do. This past February, I did 30 events in a leap year. That meant that sometimes I was doing two events a day. In that process, if I'm running to the plane and jokingly, of course, I'm going to paint the picture and say, man, I get to the plane. Thank God. (laughs) I grab the person's water in first class, drink his water. Thank you. I needed that. And I said, man, God is the greatest. Man, some people in the aisle are going to be high-fiving me. They're going to say, oh, man, hold up, do that again. Let me, <laughs> let me do it. Let me go live. You know, I want to capture that. That was amazing. You know, you take that same experience and you say it in a different language. Because of xenophobia, Islamophobia, it's mm-hmm. this, oh, my goodness, what was that? What, what's going on, right? But if I, I'm saying the same thing that I just said, just in Arabic. And so to bridge the gap, this is a beautiful way to do that. No, he doesn't have a kufi on. No, he's not, you know, whatever the outward stuff is. But you you get a sense that even in my story, right, when you look at when they see us, you say to yourself, wow, how did Yusuf get through this? Like, you see the story, you hear the story, but then you're like, he just meditated? Like, what? <laughs> you know, like, how is that even possible, you know? But then you hear and then you dive in and then you realize that there's layers to things. There is a way to plug in to the source of all power in a way that's really, really meaningful, that shifts your life, that it raises your vibrations, that allows you to be seen differently and almost be protected because of that. Whereas everyone else is cowering and afraid and, oh, my goodness, you know, I don't want to. And then you see this other person that's like, wow. This guy looks like he's doing time on his head, you know, just having a good old time. You know, not that it was that all the time, but, you know, that that whole piece. And I think because of xenophobia and because of how various religions show up in the world, there's this sense to, for one, disclaim what would be considered more rigid ideas and be more worldly in that reality and say, no, I'm this kind and not that kind. whereas to just explain it is easier than to try to say, oh, no, I'm this kind and not that kind. I don't know if there are many Black Muslim characters in young adult literature. I'd have to look into that. I was just assuming that there aren't many characters that blend those two identities together, which is why, again, I was so excited, too, that Amal is representing Yusuf in this way. Question for both of you. Do you guys think 
through the book that Islam has been portrayed in the way that Yusuf, it's impacted your life. And throughout there are poems about conversations with God, but it's usually with an authoritative figure. And so I just was curious whether maybe you wish that there was more that you could explain about Islam through the book. Like, I was curious about that because I didn't see the religion aspect be shown through very vibrantly, but I did see the spiritual journey of you, if that makes sense. So I just wanted to get your thoughts on that. I think that that is a good observation. One of the things that perhaps maybe even in the way I describe things, it comes through and maybe comes from me understanding that there is There's a way, I would say, that you can process everything through your own personal lens. And what I mean by that is, so we both were in Hunter College and we were taking a course. And the name of the class that we were in was African Civilization. Civilization. Right. And in that, we were learning about spiritual practices and spiritual realities in Africa that I was immediately able to identify and attach to because of my understanding in in Islam, right? And some of it may sound and seem more lofty, but in Islam, the the ultimate goal is to become as pure, as angelic, if you will, as you can possibly be. And so there's this sense of being in the world, but not of the world. There's this very personal side of Islam that everyone can almost appreciate that is not in your face. It's not like you're trying to express your I'm Muslim kind of (laughs) thing out there. You just like you just be people. go, Oh, no, that's you know, your, your actions are speaking louder than you're saying or what you're doing, you know. And because of that, there's this knowing Like when I was in prison, there was a magnetic component to that where people were drawn Mm -hmm. to me and it had nothing to do with them. You know, seeing me read a Quran or any of that other stuff. It was just like something about that person. And then I found community even in prison. And so it's hard to describe that outward expression of it because you you, in a way there's there is a push that you want to say, no, I got to make sure people know who I am. But then there's this other way of you just be. And I think that that's one of the great things about, you know, showing Amal in that way. He is experiencing America and in experiencing America, being Muslim, on the one hand, 9-11 kind of showed us that to be Muslim is like, oh, this is what black people have been experiencing. And to be Muslim and black is like a double whammy because you constantly have the oppression right over you. No one ever comes and says, oh, you're Jewish, you're Muslim, you're Christian. No, they say you're black, (laughs) especially if you look that way. That's the first thing that you see. And the other cool thing about it, too, is that Amal Shahid is also cool. Right. There's this cool about him, like. If he had a kufi, he might rock the kufi to the side. You know what I'm saying? Like, just it would be different. It would be there, but it would be different. You know what I'm saying? And then in that differentness would be the cool, would be the updated version of, well, how do you maintain faith in a world that is trying to take it from you? You maintain mm-hmm. it by just being. And there's a, right. there's a specialness in that. And Yusuf had shared with me that he wasn't outwardly Muslim, like exactly what he just said. 
it's not going to look like that for a 16-year-old who's just coming into himself, especially when there's no one there to tell him that he should do salat five times a day, right? And I asked Yusuf if he did that. He said, not at first. So he's still trying to figure out being incarcerated. And you got to find a new routine, right? He's finding a new routine that may or may not look like one that represents his Islamic faith. I think the reason why that poem where you were talking to your dad spiritually stuck out to me was because my mom was born and raised in Malaysia and Malaysia is a Muslim state and country. And so I knew that that said hello. And so when I read that, I thought that was really awesome. But I was like, I wonder if other people reading this would know that that means hello. Those are those Easter eggs, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, so when I, I saw that, I got excited. I was like, wow, I'm like, I'm so excited that this is here because of course that's going to be important to you, Yusuf. Like that's part of your identity. And so part of me was like, I was like, where are the other aspects of Islam throughout the book? So that's why I asked that question. This is the other part that's very interesting about just the experience in America or in the Americas, right? There is a mitochondria DNA. So I'm going to start off from that perspective. Mitochondria DNA is the link all the way back. So in, in mitochondria DNA, one of the beautiful things about that is this. Once you begin to vibrate at a higher level spiritually in islam and just i'm just going to use this for this particular perspective in islam there is oh you're muslim and then to the outside it's like well what kind of muslim are you but on the inside it's like i'm muslim <laughs> you know of course there's different types of muslims and different understandings and so forth and so on but that's the personal side of it you take mm-hmm. it and you and you massage what it is that you understand from the faith into your person. And so even Amal talking to his father was high spirituality. Right. That was almost like Sufism in a way. But how does that show mm-hmm. up even in the African experience in America where you have to take your spiritual self and bury it into the other thing? to allow it to continue to someday reemerge as what the original is. It's a really interesting kind of perspective because there's a lot of layers going on and a lot of things happening, but it's the non, it's funny, I didn't want to say this word, but I'm going to say it anyway. It's the non-threatening way because it's not threatening. One of the most basic principles in Islam I've ever loved period, mm-hmm. was the 256th, I believe, verse of the Quran, chapter 2, which says, there is no compulsion in religion. It's up to you. If you want to dive deep, you can dive deep. If you want to build your spirituality and yourself, you will find so much reward in that. And you won't even be able to really describe it because it's a personal experience that has to be experienced for your own self. Again, we had to like fold that in to a YA novel, fold that all the way in. I mean, the listeners, your listeners will all be like, what is he talking about? Or be completely blown away, right? It depends on where everybody is at on their spiritual journey. And that spiritual journey could be anything, you know, it could be crystals and incense, right? 
It could be Christianity. It could be Wiccan. You know, there is something we're saying. We're this book is also about a boy grappling with spirituality. There are ten poems with the title "Conversations with God." So it's thinking about like his relationship to power structures. That's what it's about. And our community, we have so many writers and aspiring writers as well. Evie, do you want to share a little bit about your writing journey? Like, when did you start gaining the confidence to own your voice and share that voice? You're clearly a very, very, very talented writer. Also, if you could give tips too, where you felt stumped or you felt a little hopeless, I think our community would really appreciate that. You know, when I met Yusef 20 years ago, I was a journalist first. I wanted to write investigative pieces that delve into like a case and find the truth of the matter. And I was also writing spoken word poetry. So I always was writing about social justice issues. And I started out wanting to write science fiction and fantasy not the fantasy that you see now, but more supernatural fantasy, probably like Lovecraft Country, one that says something about social justice and including supernatural forces in there. And that's where I would bring like myth from around the world with social justice issues. So I think my writing is not my writing without depth, without trying to figure out the world. I have 10 books on the contract. Well, I sold my 10th book recently, and this is my fifth book. So even now, I'm still writing. Like, when I, like, you know, turn this off, I have to go, I'm on deadline for several books. So all of that is to say, like, all my projects are me trying to figure out something. It was a huge challenge to collaborate with Yousef to say, you know what, let's write this story together I want to pull from your experience and you as a person, and I can do this. I can write from the perspective of a 16-year-old boy with your help, right? <laughs> and I didn't know if I could pull it off, but then I realized I've had enough experiences for me to be able to pull it off. I think the best thing that's worked in my favor was that I didn't find success early on. So I didn't get published until about 18 years after I first started writing and submitting my work, so that by the time I was ready to put something out, there's more depth to it and I have more stamina to keep going. I've been around long enough to see people phase out, to see people get burnt out. Burnout is very real. So the excitement of just like hitting it really big early on, uh, there is such a thing as just like, okay, you know, this is all you got. Okay, bye. Next person, right? I like the slow and steady brings out the stars. I love that, you know, and I love working on something new each time. You know what I what I love about what you're saying too, Evie, is that so high spirituality or high high understanding of what you're saying is that you have to be able to show up when the time is right. And by showing up, yeah. you have to go through and really grow through the experiences of what you have to do to prepare you, right? And so even the, so to speak, idea falling in your lap, can I write from a 16-year-old boy's perspective? Is God giving you a gift saying, I'm giving you this and giving you this thought because yes, you can, <laughs> you know? Yeah, and I yeah, think that that's the yeah. part, that's part of the secret too of understanding how life works, right? When you do what you can do and what you're supposed to do, 
your inner visions are telling you that this is what you're supposed to birth. And if you don't birth it, as my good friend Les Brown says, he says the, the most wealthiest place is not in Saudi Arabia where there's oil and in Africa where there's gold and diamonds. It's in the graveyard. It's the place where people have failed to launch, who said, I'm going to someday do this. And then on their deathbed, all of their hopes and dreams and aspirations are looking at them, knowing that they're going to die because you were the only one that could give it life. My mother would tell me this all the time. She said, your gift is how you make your money. That's God's way of telling you this is what you're supposed to do. And when you dive in and work it and flesh it out and fortify it Mm -hmm. and build it up, man, it all works out. Yeah, I agree. I was prepared to work on this book. Uh, I would have interviewed you 20 years ago, right? If we had that interview, I would have already gotten into your mind and soul. So this is the book I wanted to write 20 years ago, but didn't know it yet. We were collaborating before we knew that we were collaborating. Yes, indeed. Your guys' life paths like crossed and you created this immaculate piece of work. And Evie, I love that you talked about, you know, your challenges Mm -hmm. with writing, right? Because it took you so many years before you got published. And Yusuf, I thought it was so inspiring when I read that you said you came out of prison on parole at 23 and you reached out to publishing houses. And at that time, the conviction wasn't overturned yet. And they didn't think your story was compelling enough. Right. And so then you decided to to put together your poetry in a book, publish it. And now your story is being beautifully represented through EB's writing in Punching the Air. How how does that make you reflect on your journey? I mean, it's like the DNA helix, right? It's it's a beautiful reflection about the journey because it says that everything was for a reason. You know, I met Evie. 1997, no, 1999, 2017, right? And now it's like at this moment, you have the opportunity and the ability to produce what needs to be produced. To me, it's a beautiful thing. I've very purposefully described my personal experience of going to prison as a love story between God and his people. You know, when I look at the story of Yusuf as an example, his story and his brothers in the, at least the Quranic expression of it is so profound because you find other meaning, like layers of meaning in it, right? People say to themselves all the time when they get in a, in a bind, you know, oh, I'm just going to do this one maybe unsavory thing and then I'll reform myself. That's what the brothers of Yusuf said when they wanted to get rid of him. And the fact that Yusuf, in a way, can be a representation of us as a people, meaning black and brown folks who were snatched from Africa and brought to America, right? He was knocked out, placed in prison to do something great and become something greater. And I think that that's the beautiful thing about it all. This was amazing, guys. I want to do some rapid fire (laughs) questions. So just think for a second about our community. We have a lot of parents, people who are juggling multiple things, right? You guys are parents. I want to start off with one rapid fire question. What has been keeping you both sane? Yusef, you have a family with 10 kids, right? Am I correct with that? And then Evie, you have three of your own. Like, why don't we start with Yusef? What has been keeping you sane 
throughout COVID and balancing work-life balance. The great thing about my children is that the age range is from 25 down to four years old. In our house, we have a 21-year-old and then an 11-year-old, eight, six, and four. And they're all, I would say, mature in a way because the youngest one has been learning from the older ones. Mm-hmm. And every single one of them have been learning like that. So they helped me to become the great person that I need to be. Aw, <laughs> Best dad award. <laughs> How about you, Evie? My husband is keeping me sane. He's holding it down. Like, he makes dinner. I could not, with everything that I'm doing, in the same way that Sonovia is holding it down, Yusuf. My wife is amazing in that she is magically juggling everything. I know that you guys have had so many interviews over the past, like, few weeks, right? Like, what is it that you're most looking forward to about this book launching on September 1st? How is this change with COVID? Like, how did your plans change? I was curious about that because their book tour must be completely virtual now, I'm assuming. It is. I think it's amazing in the way that we've been moving this. It's figuring it out, right? You know, in the era of the what ifs, we found a way. And that's the beautiful thing about it because it's like we're charting in uncharted territory and we're creating and making it happen. And I think that my biggest want is the success of the book. You know, when I think about where and what happened, I'm thinking about the success of When They See Us. I'm thinking about the Central Park Five documentary. I'm thinking about all of those things leading up to all of the other things that are to come. When They See Us, 190 plus countries, they're still seeing When They See Us. Punching the Air, the reviews are amazing. When people you know, tag us in the reviews on social media. I'm just always like, wow, this is great. People get it. People are reading it. People are mm-hmm. loving this book, right? Where it's showing up. Beautiful. So just the success and continued success of it. And I'm just happy and excited about it. <laughs> I'm excited too, guys. How about you, Amy? <laughs> I think whatever happens with the book, I'm glad that I can have an in-depth conversation with someone who shares my values It's been a hard journey for me as a young adult author because New York is so culturally specific. So when Trayvon Martin was happening, there were people who were very angry and I was angry too. At the same time, I was just like, this has been happening. This is not new, right? How do you tell young people who are 20 years younger that, listen, this is what we did 20 years ago. We had this person, we had that person, we had this person. How can we do something very different? And now it's happening. The conversation is changing. So I love that we are putting out a book when young people are talking about prison abolition. And it's a huge topic, right? I don't think all of us understand what it means, but the start of something powerful is to just start to have the vocabulary for it, right? We didn't have that vocabulary 20 years ago. So it starts with the vocabulary and with the vocabulary, young people start to unpack it, figure out what it means, and then start to implement it. And it may not be in our generation or the next generation. It might be several generations down the line. It's coming at such an opportune moment. And I really hope that through people's now like intensified curiosity and willingness to make change and think about 
the ways each of us have been in our own way perpetuating this unjust system, right? Like that they can learn from this and youth can start talking about this at an early age, right? And so I'm excited about that. And so last final question, how can people connect with both of you? You can find me at at EBZoboy on all platforms. I-B-I-Z-O-B-O-I, Instagram on Twitter. And you can find me at Dr. Dr. Underscore Yusef Salam, Y-U-S-E-F-S-A-L-A-A-M on Twitter. Same variation on Instagram. Just remove the underscore and put a dot. And then on Facebook, it will be Yusuf.Salam. Thank you so much for your time and all of the work that you guys are doing every day to push forward social justice and racial justice and racial equity and everything in between. Like it's exhausting work. And the fact that you have invested your life work into this is undoubtedly making an impact. And I feel so beyond grateful that I even had the chance to talk to you both. Thank you so, so much. And that wraps up our 88 Cups of Tea special edition podcast episode for today. A heartfelt thank you to Dr. Yusuf Salam and E.B. Zaboy for sharing your story with us and how you've worked together to bring about such a powerful and important novel. And a heartfelt thank you to Lalina Chang for guiding and facilitating today's 88 Cups of Tea's guest host. I am honored and grateful to the three of you for sharing your stories with our community. This episode was co-produced by Lalina Chang in addition to research and analysis. Audio engineering and post-production editing by Andor Sperling. This interview was recorded and captured by Adam Roy of Pragmatic Sound. And content and show notes by Rachel Colbert. A tremendous thank you to my entire team for making this episode happen. Listeners, please be sure to say hi to both Yusuf Salam and Ibi Zaboy on social media. You can find Yusuf on Twitter at Dr. Underscore Yusuf Salam and on Instagram at Dr. Period Yusuf Salam. And you can find EB on Twitter and Instagram at EB Zaboy. To enter for your chance to win a copy of Punching the Air, remember that you must be a U.S. resident Share a photo of yourself while listening to this podcast episode or take a screenshot of your favorite podcast player like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher while you're listening to this episode and post the photo to your Instagram or Twitter. In your post, share why you think it's important for more people to listen to this conversation. Bonus points for those who share what deeply resonated with them. And don't forget, you must include hashtag punching the air and tag at 88 cups of tea for us to find your post and the deadline to enter is thursday september 10th at 11:59 p.m eastern standard time and that's 8:59 p.m pacific standard time good luck to everybody and to find all the resources and books mentioned throughout today's episode along with tweetable quotes and the timestamps of highlights throughout their entire conversation head on over to their show notes page at 88cupsoftea.com slash yusuf-salam-eb-zaboy. Over the last month, we've been celebrating 88 Cups of Tea reaching our momentous five-year anniversary. And to wrap up the last bit of our festivities, we teamed up with our community's top requested literary agents to gift 
three of you podcast listeners a chance to boost your storytelling journey with Forward Momentum. I received 151 completed submissions of beautiful and moving stories. As mentioned during the submission announcements, I would be selecting the three storytellers whose submissions resonated deeply with me or moved me in some way, and I would also factor in who I thought would benefit most from these gifts to advance their careers. This was honestly a difficult decision to make as there were so many fantastic stories. So without further ado, let's dive into announcing the three recipients. For our first prize, Holly Root of Root Literary is generously gifting a 20-minute phone call to answer your most burning questions about the industry. Congratulations, Rebecca Velariel. You've been chosen to receive this gift. Now for our second prize, Susie Townsend of New Leaf Literary is generously gifting a critique of a storyteller's query letter and the first five pages of their manuscript. Congratulations, Haley Deep. You've been chosen to receive this gift. And for our third and final prize, Joanna Volpe of New Leaf Literary is generously gifting a 20-minute phone call along with a critique of a storyteller's query letter and the first five pages of their manuscript. Congratulations, Chanelo Chadibe. You've been chosen to receive this gift. Thank you to each and every one of you 150 storytellers who completed our submission form from beginning to the very end. Thank you to each and every one of you 151 storytellers for not only taking the time to submit, but for also having the courage to show up for your writing. I hope that each and every one of you are feeling proud of yourselves for putting your work out there Remember, that's one of the most pivotal steps you can take for your journey as a storyteller, and I am so proud of all of you. Now, before we wrap up today's episode, if you'd love to volunteer your time and join our team to help us grow 88 Cups of Tea and continue supporting and nurturing storytellers, visit 88cupsoftea.com slash five years, all spelled out, to find the link to the volunteer application form. Have a productive week and I will catch you not next Thursday, but the one after that.